message can be dismissed at this time. And I invite the rest of you to take out of your bulletin the outline for our sermon today as it contains our text and some fill-in-the-blanks and spaces for you to write some notes. Hopefully, you'll find some things encouraging that God wants to teach you and meditate upon this week and this Advent season. Well, we've been hearing that because of the recession coming, the higher costs from inflation, many families and individuals are going to cut back on spending during this Christmas season. Well, you wouldn't know it by the amount of online purchasing on Black Friday, but some people are thinking of creative ways to cut back, like family members choosing names out of a hat and buying a gift for just one other family member for a certain amount of money. And I heard one person say that this cost saving, this being more conscientious about spending may help us to focus on the real meaning of Christmas. You know, we hear that a lot this Advent season. Let's keep Christ in Christmas. Jesus is the real reason for the season. What is the real reason to celebrate this time of year? Well, of course, as Christians, we know that we are celebrating the most wondrous gift of all, the incarnation and birth of Jesus Christ. God the Son came to this earth and took on human flesh, a human nature yet without sin, in order to save us from our sins. And so to help us to reflect on the real meaning of Christmas, we've chosen an Advent season sermon series looking to Jesus's I am statements in the Gospel of John. We're calling it the gift of the great I am. And so the first point of this message is really an introduction to this series, an introduction to the gift of the great I am Advent series. If you're familiar at all with John's gospel, it begins in the first chapter testifying that Jesus was the Word. The Word made flesh. And the Word was God, who was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him, and in Him was life. And this life was the light of man. And John, in his gospel, gives testimony of how Jesus displayed that he was God in his life, in his miracles, and in his teaching. He proved that he was God, the second person of the Trinity, who came in the flesh as the Messiah to save us. Now in John's gospel, there are recorded seven I am statements of Jesus, showing the seven ways that he came to minister to us as God and man. And so in our Advent sermon series, we're going to examine each one of those I am statements as the gifts that Jesus brought us through his incarnation, his life, death, and resurrection. The I am statements are, I am the way and the truth and the life, John 14, 6. I am the bread of life in John 6, 41 and 42. I am the door of the sheep. In John 10, 7 through 9. I am the good shepherd. In John 10, 11 and 14. 
I am the light of the world in John 8, 12. I am the resurrection and the life in John eleven twenty five, And I am the true vine in John 15, verses 1 through 5. But today, we're going to look at the greatest of the I am statements, and I have not included that in this list that I just read. It is the greatest because it highlights the meaning of the phrase, I am. So today, we're going to be looking at John 8, specifically verses 56 through 59. And before I read this text, I want to give you the context of this text. That's our second point. Pretty much from verse 38 through 55 in John chapter 8, Jesus is addressing his countrymen, the Jews, and he's made a statement that he is the light of the world and that the one who follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Pharisees confront Jesus about this, and he's told them, that the Father is the one who bears witness of him as to who he is. But Jesus tells them that they neither knew him nor the Father. And he tells them that he's going back to his Father, but they cannot come where he's going because he's from above and they are from below. They will die in their sins unless they believe in him. Well, the Pharisees ask him who he was. And he answered by saying, what he has heard from the Father, and he has come on the authority of the Father. And when the Son of Man will be lifted up, they will know who he is. Jesus then says that if they abide in his word, they will truly be his disciples. And if they did, they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. Well, the Pharisees answered, they were of their father Abraham, and they didn't need to be set free from anything. Well, Jesus then answers, that they're slaves to sin, but he can set them free. Jesus exclaims that he knew that they were the offspring of Abraham, but they were not truly Abraham's spiritual children because they sought to kill him. You see, he says if God were their father, they would love him because he came from the father. And then Jesus says to them, your father is the devil. And if they were, God, they were of God, they would hear God's word. Well, at that, the Jews are further incensed. And they use an ethnic slur by calling Jesus a Samaritan. Because the Samaritans were looked down upon. They were considered half-breeds and apostates. And they also accused Jesus of having a demon. And Jesus denies that he had a demon. And he says that God the Father would glorify him. And then he states in verse 52 that if anyone keeps his word, he will never taste death. And then they said, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? They were saying, how could you claim to preserve a believer from death? Who do you make yourself out to be? Are you greater than Abraham? And Jesus answers them by saying, The Father glorifies him, and he knows him and keeps his word. And then we come to our text today. After the unbelieving Jews and Pharisees challenged Jesus' claims about himself 
and in anger they try to insult him, Jesus declares something amazing about himself in relation to Abraham and about his true nature. And so follow along as I read God's word in John chapter 8, verses 56 through 59. This is the word of God. Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Thus far, the reading of God's word, we're going to examine these two amazing statements that Jesus makes about himself and the meaning of those statements. The first one is found in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And so the third point is God showing us in this text that Abraham rejoiced and saw Jesus' day. What does that mean? The Jews looked to Abraham as their spiritual father. And it was to Abraham that God promised that he would be his God and to his offspring that he would make him the father of many nations. From his offspring would come multitudes. God would give them a promised land. And the Jews understood that it was through Adam or Abraham's seed that the Messiah, the Savior, would come to fulfill God's covenant promises of grace. And we saw this in our scripture readings. And in the assurance of pardon, Paul says in Galatians 3, the gospel was preached to Abraham so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles by faith. Jesus was saying, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. This word rejoiced is a word in the past tense, which refers to a specific moment. And it means that he was overjoyed. He saw Jesus' day. What does that mean? Well, first it must mean that Abraham saw Jesus' day through the promises that God gave him. God told Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. He told him to look at the stars in the sky. They're countless. And so will be your descendants. And he also realized that these promises would come true through the birth of a single descendant, the Messiah. But I think even more specifically, Abraham must have seen Jesus in the types of the Old Testament. One important type was when Abraham was told by God to go sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Abraham obeyed and took Isaac along with his servant and told the servant when they arrived at Mount Moriah, we will come back to you. And Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. And then when he and Isaac went up the mountain, Isaac asked Abraham, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Abraham said, God 
will provide. And just as Abraham was about to plunge his knife into the heart of his son on the altar, the voice of the angel halted him. And Abraham saw God provide a substitute sacrifice for his son Isaac through a ram that was caught in a thicket. And I believe he realized that this was somehow how God would provide a substitute sacrifice for the sins of his people. Just as this ram died in Isaac's place, Jesus died as our substitute on the cross. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. But in this statement, we also see that people of the Old Testament were saved the same way as people in the New Testament. Abraham was saved by faith. He had some knowledge of how God would fulfill his promises through a coming descendant who would be the Messiah. And he believed God and his covenant promises of grace. You see, the reason mankind needs a Messiah, a Savior, in the first place, is that the first man, Adam, sinned. He disobeyed God in the garden. He and Eve ate of the tree that God forbade them to eat. And when this happened, they fell from intimate fellowship with God. They were banished from the garden, and they were banished from the intimate presence of God. Sin entered the world, corrupted man's nature and because of this all of us are born with a rebellious sinful nature and we're separated from God apart from his grace God is holy and he shows us that he requires perfect righteousness perfect obedience in our thoughts in our words and in our deeds according to his commandments and we all fall miserably short we Furthermore, are guilty before God. And he cannot look the other way because he is a just God. All of sin must be judged in hell. And we amass a great debt of sin that we cannot repay God. And we cannot atone for our sins. But God promised in his covenant that he would provide an offspring of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent God the Father sent God the Son to come to this earth to become a man. And he was conceived in the Virgin Mary by God the Holy Spirit. He was 100% man and yet remained 100% God. He took on human flesh and a human nature without sin in order to save us. That's what his name meant. Savior. He came to fulfill God's righteous requirements for us he came as our substitute and he was completely obedient to God's commandments from his heart he also came to atone for our sins when he went to the cross he was the perfect lamb of God the substitute sacrifice and our guilt and sin were laid upon him and he received the judgment we deserve he received hell in the place of those he came to die for who would believe in him and the wrath of God was poured out upon him and was satisfied for those he came to die for and he rose from the dead on the third day certifying that he in fact was God the Messiah 
and he had accomplished what he came to do. And so all those who are born again, who have received a new nature and turn from their sin and relying on their righteousness and rely on who Jesus is and what he did alone for their salvation, they are declared acceptable to God. They are declared righteous before God. And they're forgiven of all their lifetime of sin. And they're adopted into God's family. They're given the gift of eternal life in heaven with God forever. They're united to the Holy Trinity through the indwelling Holy Spirit and they're guaranteed the resurrection of their bodies someday when Christ returns. You see, Abraham saw a glimpse of Jesus' day, a glimpse of how God's promise of salvation would be fulfilled in the coming Messiah. Well, the Pharisees were incredulous about this claim of Jesus. They ridicule him by saying, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? 50 years was considered at that time the year of retirement. It was also the year the Levites would retire from their full-time work. And what they are saying is, you're not even of retirement age, and yet you claim that Abraham saw you and You saw Abraham? He died almost 2,000 years ago. That's ridiculous. But then Jesus gives the second amazing statement in verse 58. He says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This is the fourth point that God wants us to see. Jesus' unmistakable claim of deity. Before Abraham, Abraham was, I am. Jesus' opponents uh, ridiculed the idea that he could have seen Abraham or Abraham could have seen him, but Jesus gave them now something far more astounding to think about. Here is the most unmistakable statement of Jesus about his deity in the Bible. Jesus is saying, That before Abraham came into being, before he was born, Jesus always existed. But this statement, I am, really cannot be completely understood without knowing its Old Testament context. And so I'd like for you to turn to Exodus chapter 3, if you have a copy of God's Word with you. If you don't, in your pew Bibles, it's on page 43. This is the account of God appearing before Moses in the burning bush. Follow along as I read, beginning with verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked And behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, 
I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then in verses 7 through 9, God says to Moses that he has seen the affliction of his people. He's heard their cries, and he tells Moses he's going to deliver them out of Egypt and into a promised land. And then he says in verses 10 through 15, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Who shall I say to them? Or what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. That ends the reading of God's word. God revealed his name to Moses with the present indicative title, I am. In the Hebrew, this word is Yahweh, and The Jews thought it was so holy they would not pronounce it, but instead used the word Jehovah. The meaning of I am is God's self-designation of his eternal present existence. Jesus is not just saying here, when Abraham was, I was. He didn't want to say just that he existed when Abraham did. He's using a term which God utilized to identify himself. He said, when Abraham was, I am. Jesus is claiming to be the I am of Exodus 3. He's claiming to be God. He existed before Abraham. He's saying, I existed throughout eternity past. He affirms his eternal, timeless, absolute essence. He is the eternal Christ sharing the everlasting life of the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is the changeless Lord who towers over history, the master of time, the ruler of the ages, undiminished by the passing of centuries, the same yesterday, today, and forever. His existence transcends time. And so in conformity with John's prologue, he is the divine Logos, Never was there a time that he was not. He was the one who led the people out of Egypt into the wilderness and the promised land. Jesus takes to himself one of the most sacred of divine expressions of self-reference and makes the assumption of that expression the proof of his superiority over Abraham. This phrase harbors within itself the most authentic, the most audacious, the most profound affirmation of Jesus being God. Jesus' opponents immediately understood 
the implication of what he was saying. They were scandalized. It appears to them that he's blaspheming, a blasphemy of the worst sort. And so in verse 59, it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Stoning was prescribed in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 14 through 16, as the penalty for blasphemy, but it was only to be administered after a court with a calm judicial decision and due process would determine that someone had blasphemed But here, these people, these Pharisees could not help themselves. They were so incensed. And so we see the fruit of mob violence. But Jesus eluded them. He went away. He knew it was not his time yet to die. But later, authorities made another attempt to stone Jesus. In John chapter 10, verse 31 and 33, In fact, in three other times in John, Jesus' opponents accuse him of claiming to be divine. So, we've covered the introduction to our series, the context of our text, and these two amazing statements of Jesus. So what? What difference does this make today? How should we live differently because of what Jesus is teaching us. Let me suggest three application points from this text. As we examine these I am statements of Jesus in our Advent series, the gift of the great I am, Jesus' statement of being the I am is the greatest of all and it in fact validates all the other I am claims of Jesus. Because if he is not God, then he cannot be these other I am statements. But because he is the great I am, then he also is, these, is the other I am's as well. See, the Pharisees thought that they were saved on the basis of being a descendant, a blood descendant of Abraham. Much like some people today believe that because they've gone to church their whole life or they were brought up in a Christian family, that makes them a Christian. But no one is a Christian automatically just by growing up in a Christian home or going to church. And you're not a Christian just because you do certain things. God has to deliver you from the domain of darkness and bring you into his light. He has to change your heart and nature. He has to unite you to Christ and give you faith in his son and repentance over your sins. And so I ask you, the first application Have you received a new nature evidenced by true faith in Jesus? What is true faith in Jesus? Well, it's not just believing that he was a great moral teacher or even a prophet. And Christianity isn't just about following the example of Jesus. We cannot get to heaven by our works. No, Jesus came as God and man to save us to be righteous for us, to atone for our sins, to rise from the dead, to give us victory over death and sin and the devil, to give us the gift of eternal life with him forever. True faith in Jesus Christ is believing in and surrendering to his deity. 
He is Lord. We surrender to his lordship and we rely on his work alone for our salvation. His claims are right before us here in the scriptures, but some, hearing these claims, refuse to believe in it like these religious authorities. They hear Jesus' claims and the truths and the overtures of the gospel, and they insist upon their own way. They don't act upon these truths. They have not come to acknowledge Jesus as truly God and its implication of surrendering to his lordship and believing in his work for salvation. They have not truly acknowledged why he had to be God and man to save them. They have not repented of their sins and looked to him alone for salvation. They are lost without truly believing these things about Christ. And my friends, that is how serious the deity of Christ is. And of course, we have prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ displaying the truth that the Messiah would be God. One very famous one that we read all the time, we sing about, Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In Matthew 1, 26, quoting Isaiah 7, 14, says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus as Emmanuel. What are the implications of the deity of Christ? Well, one of the implications is that he is the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive, that the world could receive. His coming means that those who receive him are saved from God's judgment, are brought into fellowship with God, are given the gift of eternal life and union with God forever. This is an astounding claim. And therefore, point two, you cannot be neutral about Jesus. The meaning of Christmas is Jesus is the great I am and Savior. And we cannot be indifferent about him. He doesn't leave us with that option. And thus we must follow him as God and Lord and Savior, or we will seek somehow to eradicate his presence from our lives as the religious leaders attempted to do in his day. And this is the great question of Christmas. This is the reason for the season. Jesus came to this world. He is God. He came in the flesh to save us. What will you do with the great I am? Will you surrender to him and rely on him alone for salvation? Or will you choose to believe in another savior of your own making? There is the decisive responses here in this text of either belief or hearts that become hard. There were those who heard Jesus' claims and they gathered stones to kill him. They would not release their false ideas of a Messiah, even in the presence of the true Messiah, the infinite God-man. That's how hard our hearts are, apart from the grace of God causing us to be born again. 
Jesus said to them in verse 24 that unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And the same stakes are involved in our response to Jesus today. Will you receive him as the great gift of the I am? Or will you reject him? Have you acknowledged him as the great I am? And what he came to do as the infinite God-man to save you, to give you life of fellowship with God forever. There is no greater gift and there is no more serious issue than what we will do with this great gift. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or who he said he was. There is no in-between. Who else but a madman or someone indwelt by a demon would claim to be God if he were not? If you were to say this about yourself, what Jesus said about himself, you'd be treated with sedatives. You'd maybe be institutionalized. But if he is God, you cannot ignore his incarnation and the reason for his coming. Thirdly, how often do we praise Jesus simply for who he is? How much time do we give to Jesus this time of year and all times of the year for adoration and praise as our Lord and Savior, as our God? Do we praise him because he is the King of kings, Lord of lords? Do we recognize that he alone is God, the self-existent one, the sovereign one, the righteous one, the holy, powerful, and all-knowing one? We need to contemplate him more. And that's what we ought to be doing this Advent season. Thinking about who he is. Why he came to this world as a man. And so my third application point is praise God for the gift of the great I am. We are bombarded with all kinds of bad news these days. And we're tempted to feel hopeless and despairing. But consider Christ. He has all time in his hands. He is 100% God, the great I am, and 100% man who died and rose again. And he is our Savior, seated on the right hand of God the Father on his throne. And we don't have to fear a thing. There are these uncertainties all around us. Health problems, threats to our well-being. But we need to know that if we know Jesus as our I am and as our Savior, as our Lord, then we can rest in him. He will never abandon us. Think of what God was asking Moses to do. To go back to Egypt where he was a wanted man and to declare God's name and to deliver his people out of Egypt. Imagine the fear that Moses was tempted to have and yet What did God say? I will be with you. This is my name. Tell my name to my people. And he did this. And God gave him the resources of his power to deliver God's people out of Egypt. And that is the same with us. God says to us, my child, believe I am. And because I am, I will take you through all the trials and concerns you have, and you will have my peace. You will be comforted knowing that I have your plan already 
mapped out and it is for your good and for your glory. You will get to the destination that I have planned for you, heaven. And on the way, I will be with you always, even to the end of time. So here, the great I am gives us peace and purpose and comfort in this life as we follow him. Will you follow him? Will you follow him as the great I am? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible passage. Jesus proclaiming that he is God. Forgive us, Lord, for how we just focus on the man, Jesus, when we have to consider that he is both God and man. And he could only be both God and man to provide our salvation for us. So Lord, help us to be encouraged this season to consider the great I am, the great gift of the I am as we look at all these other statements that Jesus makes about himself. Help us to realize that he can only make those statements because he is God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing our hymn of response. Joy to the Lord.